Genesis 14. All right, if you would, let's uh, stand again for the reading of God's Word. Genesis 14, I'm going to read the whole chapter, what we'll be looking at this morning. And we'll read and then we'll pray. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elasar, Kedor Leomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goam, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shanab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they, have ser- they had served Kedorlaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled in the fourteenth in the fourteenth year of Kedorlaomer, and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Raphim in Ashtaroth, Carnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Amim in Shaveh, Kiriathim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, Seir rather, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. When they turned back and came to En Mishvat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Kedor Lamer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elasar. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen, Lot, with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Kedor Leomer and the kings who were with him, 
The king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shabeh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eschol, and Mamre take their share. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. Let's pray. Again, Heavenly Father, we thank You for the opportunity to be here today. Thank You for Your Word, truth that You have given to us, made known to us. And Lord, now we're asking that You enable us to understand rightly discern this passage and its relationship to us, what it means and how that is significant for for our own lives, what we should learn from it. So Lord, I ask that you enable me to speak, deliver your message with clarity, with accuracy, and open all of our ears to hear. May we Receive these words that were just read for what they are, your very words. God breathe. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Okay. Remember in chapter 13 that Abram and Lot separated because um, they were both extremely wealthy. God was blessing Abram and Lot, and uh, their herdsmen were having problems getting along. Uh, So one thing you need to realize here, or we need to realize here, is that when we're reading about these people moving about, we're reading about Abram, Abraham, he'll later be called, um, we may picture in our minds a a group of... uh, seven or eight people walking around, <laughs> uh, you know, like pack up the covered wagon and let's move to the next spot. And uh, that's not the way it is. They, God is blessing Abram and, and he is prospering and his entourage is growing. In fact, here we saw that it was mentioned that he had 318 trained men, that is trained for war. Um, and I'm pointing that out because what's happening here is Abram is becoming a significant um, force, you might say, a force to be reckoned with. In fact, just think of this. What we were talking about last week when Abram, uh, uh, the week prior, rather, a couple weeks ago, when Abram went into Egypt, uh, isn't it kind of odd that Pharaoh would even know that he was there? 
Imagine if you boarded a plane today and flew into another country. Uh, it's not likely that the leadership of the country would even know you exist. And I'm, again, pointing that out because it seems to indicate that um, because of Abram's wealth and because of the, si- the, the size of uh, the, the clan that is traveling with him, uh, that he was something that could not be ignored and so uh, it wasn't as, as though it were just five or ten or fifteen people going into Egypt. It was a whole um, group of people, like, a, like an army, like a small army. In fact, that's exactly what we're seeing play out here. He has the means to fight battles, all right? So, so uh, why is that important? Well, because remember back in uh, chapter 12, God says, I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God pronounces... Uh, in fact, I should have backed up a little further than that. Look at, look at 12.2. God pronounces blessing upon Abraham. Upon Abram. Verse, chapter 12, verse 2. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So that's what's happening here. Abram, God is fulfilling His promise, and Abram is becoming um, a very significant... Um, I guess you might think of him as like a tribal leader here at this point. Uh, so, again, remember last week they separated because, because of their prosperity, and uh, now in chapter 14, Lot finds himself... Remember, he moved over towards Sodom... And Gomorrah, and now he finds himself in a uh, sort of caught in crossfire, uh, but in the, with this conflict, and and this is a typical, um, what like a story you might see in ancient uh, mid eastern culture. You know, you have uh, dominant kings that are called suzerain kings. They dominate. They form treaties with other kings to to reinforce themselves, and then they dominate over these smaller states or smaller kings called vassal kings and uh, kind of keep them in check. And they, they form treaties with them that basically say, we'll let you live if uh, you pay us taxes. <laughs> Something along those lines is usually how it worked out. And so then it wasn't uncommon at all for the vassal king, the vassal states, to rise up in rebellion and say, you know, we've, we've, we've had enough of this. So in chapter 14... You've got these five kings, two of whom were the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and three other uh, allies with them, who had been dominated for 12 years, um, in particular by Kedor uh, Leomer, who is, we're told here, is king of Elam. But then he has these other three kings with him, you know, who have his back, they, they're backing him up. And these five kings, including uh, Sodom and, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, rebel against these four. Now, this probably would not have any significance for Abram, except that, as we said, Lot gets caught in the middle of it. Abram's kinsman. And so when the Susuran kings, the dominant kings, um, defeat the vassal kings, they take the spoil, and in the process of doing that, they take Lot and his family. 
So, someone who escaped, verse 13 tells us, chapter 14, verse 13, someone who escaped came and told Abram. And by the way, notice here, he's called Abram the Hebrew. First time that term is used uh, in the Bible, the Hebrew. And he will certainly father uh, the Hebrew nation that we we, uh, commonly call Jews, but the Hebrews. So, um, Abram gets word that Lot has been taken captive and he goes after him. Now, Here's my little sentence for the, for, the, for the author's big idea here, right? The main point. Main point. God is fulfilling His promise to bless Abram and make him great. Now, I think that's why this is recorded. That's why Moses included it here. That's why God included it in the Scripture. Because He's wanting us to see that He is fulfilling His promise to Abraham. Now, again, if you go back to... Chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, you'll, you'll see the promise of blessing. And then uh, further down in chapter 12, um, verse 7, the Lord says to Abram, To your offspring I will give this land. So he says to Abram, I'm going to make you great. I'm going to make you famous, essentially. I'm going to make of you a great people. And to your descendants, to your seed, I'm going to give this land. And so that's those things, those blessings are, are coming to pass. And Abram is um, becoming a significant force uh, to be reckoned with here. He's even able to defend himself and, and, uh, and his kinsman, Lot. Now, I'm going to break this down into two main sections here. The battle and the blessing. The battle and the blessing. And, and again, remember, the, the main idea in all this is that God fulfills his promises of blessing. He's going to make Abram great, and he's going to protect him in the process. God is going to... In fact, think of it this way. God, God gives his word. Here's what I'm going to do. And then God protects his word. That is, he makes sure that what he promises actually comes to pass. So, just break it down these two, two ways, the battle and the blessing. So first is the battle, which I've already talked about quite a bit. Uh, and I'll get, I know it gets, in reading the account here, it can easily get confusing, uh, especially trying to pronounce the names of these guys, right? Um, Raphael, uh, he's king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elasar, um, Kedor Leomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goam. Now, those are the suzerain kings. That is, they're the dominant kings. And they're the ones who are being rebelled against. And then there are five vassal kings named here. Bera, king of Sodom. Bersha, king of Gomorrah. Shinab, king of Adma. Shemeber, king of Zeboim. And Bela um, are all listed as, as um, vassal kings. So these are the ones in rebellion. They, in fact, um, we're told in uh, 14.3, they, they joined forces. They joined forces in the Valley of Siddim. So they formed a confederation, and they said, you know, we've had enough, and, and we're, going to, uh, we're going to rebel against this oppression. And in the midst of that, um, you've, got, you've got 
In fact, you notice from what I just, the list I just gave you, Barak, king of Sodom, and Bersha, king of Gomorrah. Well, that's the, that's the region that Lot is living in. So in the midst of this conflict, Lot is caught in the crossfire, and he's taken captive. Um, verse 13 that we mentioned a moment ago, someone comes to Abram and says, Lot's been taken captive. So we're told in verse 13, Abram, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol, and Aner. Now, those are going to turn out to be uh, Abram's helpers as he goes after Lot. Mamre, Eschol, and Aner. These were allies of Abram. So, verse 14, when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he fled, or he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and he went and pursued it as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them. Here's a little, little bit of a uh, you know, military account here. You, again, the point being, you can tell that they, they know what they're doing. And uh, this is not just a little small band of, of uh, Bedouins who are, who are trying to figure out uh, how they get their brother back, their kinsman back. Um, they're a sizable force. And, and they even have this confederate, Abram even has this confederation uh, himself uh, with Mamre, Eschol, and Aner. And so in, anyway, they go after these kings and they rescue Lot. They rescue Lot. They divided, verse 15, divided forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah. Now, Again, you got these four suzerain kings who just defeated five vassal kings, but Abram is able to overcome them. So he overtakes them, and he defeats them. Pursued them to Hobah. He put them on the run north of Damascus. Verse 16, Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions, and the women and the people. So he rescued, he recovered all the possessions and rescued Lot. So Abram has got the victory. <clears throat> Again, significant because it's showing how God is blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And so uh, God is making Abram prosper. Not only, not only prosper um, in terms of wealth, material wealth, but, but now he's prospering in battle. Overcoming these kings. All right, so so that's the battle. Now here's the blessing. In this section here, um, verse 17 and the following verses through, through the end of the chapter, it's it's hard. I'm, I mean, I'm going to try, but it's hard to. Uh, uh, well, let me, let me say this first. It's hard to overemphasize the importance. Uh, this little section, this little obscure section right here in these next few verses because it has, it has direct reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, which I'll, I'll point out in a few minutes. But first, let's just deal with the historical account. All right, so Abram comes back, and he comes back in victory. Verse 17, After his return from the defeat of Kedor Leomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, or Salem, 
Um, so, king of Sodom goes out. He was defeated by Kedor Leomer. Now Abram has defeated Kedor Leomer. So, so the king of Sodom goes out. And by the way, Abram has recovered his possessions and so forth that were taken. So he goes out to greet Abram. And then this other king who is mentioned, Melchizedek, king of Salem. Um, that word, by the way, <clears throat> well, as that place comes very important in the Bible. Jerusalem is the city of peace, right? That's what the word means. Uh, you wouldn't know that by watching the news because a lot of times it doesn't seem like there's much peace there, does it? That, and same way in the biblical account. But that's what the word means. So Salem is peace. Peace, Melchizedek, king of peace. So Melchizedek and the king of Sodom go out to meet Abram. And Melchizedek is not only king of Salem, but he's also priest of God Most High. This is interesting because usually... Uh, if you read through the Old Testament, um, there, there are basically um, three offices um, you know, that God would specifically take someone, anoint them, that is, equip them, empower them um, to fulfill these, these governing functions. Those three are prophet, priest, and king. And it's one or the other, usually. I mean, you're either a prophet. I mean, you can be none. You can be none of the above. But if you're one of these three in the Old Testament, in the nation of Israel, you're either a prophet or you're a priest or you're a king, but you're not prophet, priest, and king. You're, you're not prophet and king or, or king and priest or something like that. They were separate. And there's good reason for that. Um, in fact, uh, you know, the priest, the priest had their function of ministering before the Lord and teaching people the Word of God. The king had his function of governing the, uh, the nation. So he's, he's the head in terms of civil government. But then there was, God would raise up prophets who would speak as his mouthpiece and even rebuke kings. Not only, not only instruct the people and rebuke the people when needed, but even rebuke the kings when needed. So, even the highest person in the civil government was held accountable to God through the Bible, you know, the Word of God that they had written, and through the mouths of the prophets who were speaking the Word of God. So, for example, when David, king of Israel, committed adultery with Bathsheba and then murdered her husband, God sent Nathan the prophet to David, right? Right? Remember that story? And Nathan rebuked the king in the form of a parable. 
He told him a little story about a man that had one little lamb that he loved dearly. And there was a rich man down the road who had a whole herd of sheep. And he had company and instead of killing one of his own, he comes and gets that one little lamb, takes it away from this guy who only has the one little lamb. And, of course, David was enraged. He's thinking he's hearing a real story, something that real, not a parable, but something that really happened in his kingdom. And this man has been robbed of his one little lamb who was dear to him. And so David the king is enraged, and he says, he, he wants to know who it is, and he says, he will surely die. And Nathan looked at David and said, you're the man. Because it wasn't a lamb at all. It was another man's wife that he took. And he had dozens of wives of his own. And he took another man's wife and murdered him. And so the prophet would even rebuke kings when necessary. Anyway, there were three different offices. Priest, prophet, king. But here Melchizedek is not only king of Salem, but he's also priest. And not only priest, but he's priest of God Most High. That's interesting too, because this is not—he's not a pagan, evidently. I mean, he's not. This is not a a priest of some pagan god. And so here we are reading a story about the true God, who's called the Lord Yahweh, the true God, who calls a man out of idolatry, Abram calls him out of the earth of Chaldees, right? says, I'm going to bring you to a land that, I, that you're going to inherit. Your seed is going to inherit. And we've talked a little bit about the, 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 the people who were already dwelling there, the Canaanites who were involved in idolatry. So it's easy to think in our minds, okay, here's Abram, the true servant of the true God, and his entourage, you know, including his kinsmen, Lot, they're serving the true God but they're in the midst of this pagan land. All of a sudden, here comes this guy on the scene, Melchizedek, who's not a pagan. He's priest of God Most High, who Abram will identify as the Lord, Yahweh. does that in verse 22. So, the king of Sodom comes out to greet Abram, and, the, and Melchizedek comes out to greet Abram. And here's the blessing, verse 19. And he blessed him. That is, Melchizedek blessed Abram. And here it is in verse 19 and 20. He, he blesses Abram and he blesses God. Here's what he says. Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now, I won't have time to, get, to spend much time in the book of Hebrews where this is kind of, uh, a lot of this is explained, but the writer of Hebrews um, makes the point that the lesser is blessed by the greater. Abram is God's man, called out of Ur of the Chaldees. When Moses is writing that, the children of Israel are about to, writing these accounts, the children of Israel are about to inherit the promised land, 
And they're looking back hundreds of years. They're looking back on Abraham, Abram, Abraham as the father of the Hebrew nation, which he was. Their ancestor. And the father of the faith. That is the, the true faith. Faith in the true God. And we even do that today. And we're taught that in the New Testament. That we have the faith of Abraham. We, like Abraham, we're declared righteous in the sight of God through faith. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So we look back historically uh, upon Abraham as sort of being uh, the one that God chose and set apart to be head, to, to be the, uh, the, the founder, the originator of this race of the people of God. So in human terms, you would kind of think there's nobody greater than Abraham. And that's pretty much how the Jews would think and still do to this day. Nobody greater than Abraham. If anybody's going to be blessing anybody, it'll be Abraham doing the blessing, and it'll be Abraham receiving tithes, not paying tithes. But that's not what happens here. It's the other way around. Melchizedek is king of peace, king of Salem, and priest of God Most High. And he blesses Abraham. The greater blesses the lesser. He pronounces blessing upon Abraham, and he receives a tenth, a tithe, of everything that Abram has taken in terms of spoil in his victory. That's verse, the latter part of verse 20. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Again, that is the lesser tithing to the greater. And the greater is not Abram, it's Melchizedek. That would be kind of a shocking thing if you're reading this as an ancient Jew. Now, verse 21, The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. And that's why he came out to meet Abram. He says, I want to get all my people back. But, you know, you won the victory. You take the spoil. Just, just let me have the people back. And Abram says, No, we're not going to do that, because then it will look like you made me rich. And I have lifted my hand to the Lord... God Most High. Now notice, Abram identifies this, you know, lest somebody would be tempted to think verse 19 and 20 is talking about a different God. Abraham identifies him as the Lord, using the proper name of God, Yahweh. Translated Lord with all capitals there. I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. He's talking about the same God Melchizedek was talking about in verse 19 and 20. God most high possessor of heaven and earth. I have lifted my hand to Him. He's, he's saying, I've taken an oath that I, verse 23, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Aner, Eschol, and Mamre, uh, let them take their share, he says. Okay. What does all this mean for us? What does this have to do with us at all? Well, um, because there are battles to be fought. Christianity is a life in this world of fighting. Fighting. But listen, our, our fighting, the way we fight is different. 
than the way Abram fought. doesn't play out the same way. It's, it's similar, but it's not exactly the same. Our warfare is different than the warfare that you see in the Old Testament. But we're still called to fight nonetheless. But we have different tactics. Our weapons are different. So, for example, our, our weapon is the, the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit in Ephesians 6. And we attack wrong opinions, Paul says in Corinthians. We don't attack people. We attack wrong ideas, what Paul calls strongholds or opinions. Uh, in fact, um, i got to do this kind of quick because we're fast running out of time here. Look in, uh, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And, and um, verse 3 is where I'm going to pick up. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. Here's a description, one description, of Christian warfare. For though we walk in the flesh... And there he's just talking about in this natural world, in this natural body. For though we walk in the flesh, verse 3, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy, verse 5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. So, Paul says, here's spiritual. Yes, we do warfare. But it's not in the flesh. We're not fighting people. Flesh and blood fighting against each other. We don't do that. Christians don't do that. That's one of the things that the world is really confused about. Sometimes Christians are confused about. We don't do that. You know, Islamists do that. Some do. Not all. But some Islamists do that. That's part of their religion. We don't do that. We don't take up arms against uh, our fellow man in order to further the gospel. That's not how it works. We do it by attacking their wrong thinking. And our weapon is the Word of God, the Bible. So in other words, just to put it simply, what we do is proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. We tell people the truth. And the purpose in doing that is to destroy their arguments, their wrong ideas. Now, don't, don't, think of, don't think of this simply in terms of winning an argument. Like, like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to confront somebody, be confrontational, confront somebody, argue them down, and win. That's not what we're saying here. We're just talking about proclaiming truth because people have wrong ideas about God. 
and everything that's attached to God. You you can think of something just as simple as love. And people think they understand it. They think they know what they're talking about when they talk about it. And most of the time, the way that they think about it, the way that they describe it, is nothing like the way the Bible thinks about it and describes it. And it's all because... They don't know God. They don't understand who He is, how He works. And so Paul is saying, that's what we attack. That's what we wage war on. The weapons of our warfare are not flesh, of the flesh. They're not carnal. But they have divine power to destroy strongholds. And the strongholds are in the mind. Wrong ideas about God. And people just... John Calvin, you've heard me say this a lot of times, but it's a, it's a famous quote by John Calvin. But John Calvin said, the mind is an idol factory. And that's what we do. I mean, we just make up our own God and we worship Him. You know, we like Him because we made Him up. <laughs> and people don't pursue the truth. And so what Christians do is present the truth. Here's the truth about God. And in doing that, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And take, here's the the goal, take every thought captive to obey Christ. And and I should be clear too that we're not just talking about um, other people. In other words, this has to be a goal in my own life, too, to bring every thought captive to the will of God, captive to obey Christ. So this warfare is not, is not just um, you know, me against the wrong ideas of other people. It's fighting the battle of wrong ideas in my own head, too, in my own mind with the Word of God. So, so I'm, I'm bringing the truth, God's Word, the truth. I'm bringing it to bear on my own thinking with the goal of destroying arguments and wrong opinions, strongholds, and bringing every thought that I have into captivity to obedience to Christ. That's the warfare that we do. Now, uh, short on time, but let me, let me do this a uh, couple things real quick. I want to say something about Melchizedek, but before I do that, just a, a little bit of application here on this. Because what we, what we as Christians struggle with is our sanctification, right? I mean, we, we, every true believer wishes they were far more mature than they are. And we get up every day probably... Um, or at least oftentimes, we get up, it seems like, fighting the same battles over and over and over and over and over. And it's easy to get frustrated and think, you know, I need victory here. That's why we like songs about victory, you know, victory in Jesus and all that kind of, and scriptures about victory, about victory. Well, This is why these things are written for us. 
to show us that God was giving Abraham victory. Now, notice two things in, in Genesis chapter 14, though, about that. Abraham fights. So does Paul in Second in, in Corinthians 10 that we were just reading. And Paul is saying that characterizes Christian life. So he's not saying we don't have to fight. We've got to fight. We've got to strive. But where does the victory come from? You say, well, Abraham was stronger than they were, and so he went out and he whooped them. Well, yeah, he did, but it's only because of the blessing of God on his life. So when you get to the blessing, Melchizedek, Genesis 14, 19, Melchizedek says, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And by the way, he's acknowledging the sovereignty of God there. He's the possessor of heaven and earth. And remember I told you before that, that word earth can also be translated land. And Abram was promised to inherit the land. So it's, 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 I, I think bound up in that whole thing, possessor of heaven and earth, is the idea that God gives the land to whoever he wants. And God promised you the land, Abram. And God promised you the land, Christian. And so it doesn't, it doesn't rest on our ability or our strength. It, it all rests on God's promise. So Melchizedek goes on and says in verse 20, And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. You notice that? He doesn't say, Man, Abram, it's a good thing that you're just bad to the bone and you were able to go out there and whip those guys. No, he says, Blessed be God who gave your enemy into your hand. He's acknowledging that Abram won the victory because God gave him the victory. In other words, this, what this whole thing is about is God fulfilling His promises of blessing. And so when Paul is instructing us in the New Testament to do spiritual warfare, it's, it's with the same idea that in the end, we win because God keeps His promises. And He's promised to give us the land. That is, He's promised to give us the inheritance, the blessing of the knowledge of Jesus Christ forever and ever and ever. It's ours, and nobody can take it away. Paul makes that clear at the end of Romans 8. Um, nobody, nothing, nobody can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, right? Because, Paul says there, He's made us more than conquerors, or He's made us overwhelmingly conquer through Him, through Christ. Very similar to what is said here in verse 20. All right, now, let me just tie this little bit and we'll be done. Melchizedek. Like I said, I don't have time this morning to go there and read through. We did, we, I preached through the book of Hebrews a few years ago and all that's available online. <laughs> By the way, if you want to go back and check out chapter 7. But there, the, chapter 6 and 7, the writer of Hebrews brings this up. Um, and he relates it to Christ. And there's a lot of debate. Some people think Melchizedek was the pre-incarnate Christ. In other words, this was Jesus appearing on the scene. That's certainly a possibility. I don't, I don't think that's what's happening here. I think that he prefigures Christ. In other words, he was a real man, king of... Salem, priest of the Most High God, but 
He's also a type. He's foreshadowing Jesus. And he's mentioned in Psalm 110. I am going to go there. And the writer of Hebrews picks up on this and points back to it. Because what he's, what he's saying is, is that this is talking about Jesus. Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord Yahweh, that's God Most High, Yahweh the Lord, God Most High. 110.4. The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In other words, there's a priestly order, like under the Old Testament law, you had the order of Aaron. Well, this is not the order of Aaron. This is the order of Melchizedek, which is superior to the order of Aaron. And that's the argument that the writer of Hebrews is making. But for our point today, our purpose today, just notice this. The Lord says to someone, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Well, who's the Lord talking to? The writer of Hebrews makes it clear. He's talking to Jesus, the eternal Son, or God the Son, and saying, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek prefigured Christ. So Jesus is King of Peace, and He's our High Priest, Priest of the Most High God, or God Most High. And not only that, remember I said earlier, you're either prophet, priest, or king. You're not, you're not even two, much less three. Unless you're Jesus. Because He is the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, and the ultimate king. He is prophet, priest, and king. And every other prophet, priest, and king down through the centuries, through the ages, was just a foreshadowing of Him, the ultimate king. And so just like Melchizedek, who was superior to Abram, pronounced blessing upon Abram, assuring him of God's blessing. We are assured of God's blessing through Jesus Christ. The the victory is ours, and it's not because we're such great warriors. It's because Jesus is a great warrior. Because he's giving the enemy into our hands. It's, or to put it in New Testament terminology, it's because he has conquered sin and death and the grave. So when Paul says in Romans 8 that, he's, that we are, actually it's a verb, we, Paul says we overwhelmingly conquer through him. Makes us sound like we're really something, doesn't it? <laughs> but that through him part is the really significant part. Jesus is the conqueror. He conquered sin, death, and the grave. And it's because He did. It's just like God giving the enemies into Abram's hand. It's because Jesus conquered in our behalf that we can be assured we have the victory. God's promises are good. Abram's learning he can count on God. We can count on God. 
His promises are good. Let's pray. Would you stand? We'll pray. Father, again, we thank You for the promise of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank You for what You have done in Jesus for us. Accomplishing deliverance. Just like Abram rescued Lot. Just like You rescued Abram and Lot. Now in Jesus, You rescue all who come to You in faith. Lord, may we forever praise You for that. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.